Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get started. Mike and I are rehearsed since it's the last Wednesday of the year 2021. We are going to make some predictions, but let's cover oil and gas pricing first. It's just entirely too warm. I was just on the phone with Phil Crane where there isn't much snow in Vermont. You've got to get there early and quit early. Not enough snow cover and, and too many people. And then before that, I was on the phone with a fellow from Houston where he's playing golf tomorrow with his son. It's supposed to be 80 degrees. I mean, that's ridiculous in Houston. So degree days, heating degree days, not only in the Northeast, but around the country are a real issue for the price of natural gas. That being said, price of natural gas has hung in at around $4, both current and the strip. So the 23 and 24 price is like 340 and 315 or 320. That's really pretty impressive given how warm it is. On oil, progress on Omicron. And when I point to progress, I think the inflection point may be our regulators. I forget whether it's the CDC or whoever makes these prescriptions or pronouncements saying that airline pilots, nurses, other people are in short supply can come back after five days rather than 10 days. I think we'll, when we look at it with the benefit of 30, 60 days of hindsight, that will be a real turning point. Don't want to get overly optimistic in terms of impact on oil demand or anything else, but I think that it will uh, turn out that after we get through the year-end Christmas, New Year's, seeing relatives flying places and whatnot, I think the testing will go way down. I think testing will just be people who have symptoms. And so when the testing goes down, the caseload will go down. And then what people will be looking at is hospital admission. And I think we already have a fair amount of evidence from here uh, not just from South Africa, that, that that people just don't go to the hospital as often or as, as in the same percentages as earlier variants. Also, I, I, I think that the people who have three shots are much less likely to go to the hospital. So I, I think it's possible by the 1st of March that, uh, you know, thing will kind of worn itself out. Certainly that is what people who predict oil demand are thinking that whether it's OPEC or they're consuming the countries. So oil is actually behaving pretty well. Remember, there still is that forecast, most notably from a team of research people that work for J.P. Morgan in London that predict $80 Brent. Generally, WTI trades $3, $4 under Brent, but average $80 Brent for 22 with spikes at over 100 and maybe not below around 60, that 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 would be a very strong oil market. One of the tricky parts if you're trying to run an oil company or a gas company is can you get your debt down so that you don't hedge, so that you enjoy that. Both the companies we've invested in play a role, you know, as board members and whatnot. And then the companies we benchmark ourselves against, you see increasingly companies deciding that there is upside in natural gas, there is upside in oil. They want to get their debt down to about one year cash flow. 
and then try to take advantage of the volatility, not be hedged. I think all that is healthy. I'm not sure I'd go out and add to positions now. You know, if you own Pioneer, you own EOG, or you own Magnolia, but I certainly wouldn't be concerned about Omicron and its impact on demand. I, I think that's getting to the point where it's it's not, not going to be much of an issue. Um, and, of course, the natural gas, LNG is still, you know, $35 or something in Europe and same in China and the rest of Asia. And the PTU equivalency is six to one. So $30 is $180 oil. Uh, that spike in prices, you can say that in Europe it's induced by Putin and Ukraine. In Asia, it's induced by the Chinese kind of getting behind and also wanting to have cleaner air for their Winter Olympics and whatnot. So there are special factors, but still, the price of LNG has been elevated for a long time. LNG exports from our country are absolutely at capacity of 13, and and there are at least five or six trains coming on that may not all get on by the end of 22. Each one of these trains is generally $700 million a day. I mean, there's a, a sixth train at, at Chenier Sabine Pass. There's a fourth train at Chenier Corpus Christi. Freeport LNG has a train coming on. Golden Pass, which is an entirely new project being built by Gutter and Exxon, kind of like 70% Gutter, 30% Exxon. At some point in the next 12 or 18 months, they'll be in operation. There's something called Venture Global, which is going to come into operation, has a second phase. So rather than 13B, by the time we get to this time next year, we will be at or will be in sight of you know, 16B. So this is pretty bullish for natural gas. Now, will the $4, you know, the weather hurts. Will the $4 be maintained? Can't tell. But certainly not a time to lighten up on oil or gas companies. As always, look for an opportunity if you have a sense for what the value is. Look for an opportunity to try to add. On interest rates, the big surprise in 21 was that the 10-year rate didn't go to 2%. I mean, remember, it got to 170 or 175, and then it reversed, and you know, it was 150. I think what has happened is that there's just way too much liquidity in the market measured by the Fed balance sheet, which before the pandemic was $4 trillion, and now it's 85 or 9 Clearly, the Fed, maybe it's just a judgment, but they waited too long to stop adding because they're adding to their balance sheet by the amount they buy every month. And, you know, so you're at, you're adding to the balance sheet at the rate of trillion and a half a year. And it's just created way too much liquidity. And, you know, one of the things that's elevated is the stock market. Cryptocurrencies are elevated. Home prices are elevated. And they have a problem now because their dual mandate is full employment or as close to full employment as you can get, no inflation, and they got inflation measures running at 6 or 7%. So now they're, they're caught. They're going to reduce the amount that they buy every month from 120 or whatever it was down to down to nothing by March or April. That's what they've announced. And, and their dot plot shows them making three interest rate increases of 25 basis points. I think the thing to watch in terms of the impact on all markets is will they be concerned enough once they stop buying more government debt 
will they decide to stop reinvesting interest amounts and uh, maturities? If they do that, they would start down. Now, think about the paper they hold probably has about a six-year maturity, average life. So, and the interest rates, of course, are very low. But if if you're at nine trillion, and you know about ten or fifteen percent what you own is coming due every year, and you stop reinvesting it, your nine trillion dollar balance sheet will come down by say you know a trillion dollars a year, trillion two, trillion three a year. It will be liquidity that will be pulled out of our economy. Now I know modern monetary theory says don't worry. Long rates will stay high. You know, the curve is flattened out. That worries people because that typically predicts a recession. How in the world will the 10-year bond stay at 1.5% if the Fed is withdrawing liquidity at the rate of 1.2 or 1.3 trillion per year? I mean, I, you know, I mean, trees don't grow to the sky. I mean, at some point, you know, supply and demand is is going to assert itself. Should be be worried about an equity portfolio. You know, as we argue, twelve stocks or ten stocks in a few research positions. Absolutely not, because what else are you going to be in? I mean, you have to protect yourself against inflation. Having good companies that have growing free cash flow, cash flow after all expenses include capex. What else are you going to invest in? So you have to stay invested now. Let's think about this from a political point of view. On interest rates, what I'm going to predict, and, and, and Michael will go next, is that at some point, inflation is significant enough so that they stop reinvesting the maturities and they start from $9 trillion down to 4 And when that happens, it may not happen until 23, but when that happens, it absolutely isn't the case that the long bond or the 10-year bond will be one and a half percent. And with that, uh, Mike and I are kind of rehearsed, so I'm going to turn it over to Mike to talk about interest rates. Okay, so we sort of diverge on opinion here, and it's not not for any specific reason, except I I don't have faith that the Fed's going to taper as quickly as they claim that they will. I think that there's a actually a third mandate the Fed has created for itself that isn't really talked about as much. And I'm reading a book called The Rise of Carry right now that goes into detail on this. And basically, the assumption is, is the Fed is also serving to protect against the liquidity squeeze. So as they begin to taper, they will be very mindful of what's happening in, especially when it comes to carry trades, if they move too fast. We're talking about pulling a lot of money out of the system and cause potentially catastrophic situations in different parts of the economy or different parts of the world as a result. So I think that their stated intention is optimistic versus reality. So if I were to guess as to what will happen next year, my my guess would be that they're not going to do three interest rate hikes. Maybe they'll do two. And I think we keep a negative real yield on the 10 year and it's no higher than two and a quarter. That is well stated. And uh, and I can't disagree with that being a possible outcome. Obviously, 
what I'm talking about, if it happened more quickly, you would have to get a positive yield after inflation. And even if inflation is stamped down to 4%, you know, from whatever it's running, 6% or 7%, you get a positive yield there of, you know, at least one point, 4%, that'd be a 5% 10-year bond. Now, I'm not going to make a prediction of that, not even if you extend out to 23, but I, I think you have laid out the parameters, both Mike's view and and my own, you know, from doing it a number more decades than Mike has. There was a time during my investing career where, you know, where the 10-year bond was in double-digit territory. So when you're investing or you're trying to comment on investing, you're, you're a bit of a prisoner of your experience. So I think that that pretty well sums up what we think about interest rates. In terms of equity values, I'm quite sanguine in, in hanging on to companies that generate more cash than they use. They can be very high priced. I mean, my goodness, look at NVIDIA. For that matter, look at Amazon or look at Alphabet. I mean, these are... I mean, I own NVIDIA through Mike's partnership and Amazon and Alphabet through my own accounts. They rise way too high. However, they generate massive amounts of cash flow. And in, in a situation where liquidity may be a concern, and Mike properly stated, not just in our economy and in our industries, but also on a worldwide basis, being a big cash flow generator is much better than not. The only caution I'd have on equities and being able to stick with them through a, a downturn is I really think that it's year end. It's time to you know catch up and, and review the things you own. I would be very uncomfortable owning given given you know I think Mike's probably right on it going slower, but I'd be very uncomfortable owning something where you have to sell additional stock or borrow additional money in order to accomplish the objective. Much more comfortable with businesses that have cash flow generation that exceeds any capital or working capital requirements. And before I turn it back to Mike, we have spent a lot of time this year looking at software businesses, both industry-specific and then ones that cover a lot of industries like, like Snowflake. I am not persuaded at this point that these businesses, which generate revenue growth, there's no question they do, but where your marketing costs and your research costs kind of chew up the cash flow so that when people look at them in terms of their cash flow generation, they jump to an idea that, hey, suppose they're not going to grow 30% a year, they're only going to grow 15% a year. And to grow 15% a year, you could cut your marketing budget in half, cut your R&D budget in half, and you'll, and you'll generate cash flow. Especially given my concern about liquidity, it generally in, in our capital markets, in our economy, and as Mike says, on a worldwide basis, I'm a little uncomfortable acquiring those kinds of things or holding those kinds of things. And with that, uh, back to Mike, because Mike's going to have a little more bullish view on that. So the first thing I'll say is that when the economy seems to be doing really well and the, everything seems like it's expanding, people are more likely to treat things that are less like money, like the real money. The comparison that we can use here is 
your checking account with cash in it versus high quality cash flow generating stocks in a portfolio. And then the more risky thing is cash burning, fast growing stocks. Those those three different categories are all very different. But when everything seems like it's moving in the right direction all the time, we maybe blur the lines between all of those. It's good to remember that if we hit some sort of liquidity crisis, another COVID-19, people's demand for those three different categories of assets are going to change dramatically. People are going to want to pull their money out of those risky cash burning assets and move it towards cash or cash flow generating companies. So I I 100% agree with Hunt in that respect. I also want to point out that the the market is not as long-term thinking as you would think that it would be. And we've discussed the multiples of next 12 months revenue that most of these SaaS companies are valued on. And what we saw through COVID is that the median multiple nearly doubled since pre-COVID. It was up about 80%. We're still up, even though the, the that category has sold off quite a bit, we're still up 20 or 30% above pre-COVID levels. So part of that is influenced by the fact that some of those companies grew very fast and therefore the valuations were pushed up. But some of that's also just investor appetite for um, higher risk assets. So where do I stand when it comes to these companies? I think if you look at them purely from what analysts are predicting next year's revenue versus their growth rates, I don't think that's the right way to look at them. I think that certain investors will take a large portfolio approach like that, and that might work for them. But if you're doing what we're talking about doing with 10 to 12 stocks, you need to have a very strong understanding of that company. And two, if they're cash burning, you need to be able to know if they're going to grow their way to cash flow positive with the capital that they currently have access to. And I think that's the important point. And also recognizing that those companies are more risky in general than the ones that historically Hunt's been talking about in these calls. Yeah, and just as an add-on to what Mike's saying, almost all these companies we've looked at, if you get a balance sheet out, have no debt and have a pretty significant cash balance because they've come public and they put the money away and they, Mike makes a very good point. They may be cash burning, but they're in a position because they have no debt and, and fairly large cash position to continue through a period of where, you know, the capital markets suffer from lack of liquidity. And another point is that the reason if for the Fed Reserve to get its balance sheet back down is so that they can do what they did when COVID-19 came. In March of 20, they basically said, don't worry about the repo market. Don't worry about financing yourself if you're a banker, whomever, turning over short-term liabilities. We will be there. Their ability to do that is much improved when they start with a smaller balance sheet. So it's really incumbent on them to get their balance sheet in shape. A couple of other things we want to cover. One is the impact of all this on the people who are elected to office on a federal basis, on a state basis, and also on elections, because after all, in 22, 
will not only have a lot of state elections and, and local elections, we'll have, we'll be electing Congress, we'll be, you know, we'll be senators up. And, uh, and as we come through 22, there'll be a lot of focus on, on the 24 presidential election. Um, and Mike's going to follow up on this, but if you look at the political spectrum, we really got four different significant areas in the political spectrum where people are. I mean, you have on the uh, Republican side, you have some very conservative, oftentimes people who are just believe that the next president should be Trump, that somehow uh, the 2020 election uh, was stolen, I guess is their word. Then you have a, a middle part of that Republican Party, like Glenn Youngkin, the guy who has become governor of, of Virginia. He ran not mentioning Trump. He didn't trash Trump or anything, but he just, you know, he, he was running his own campaign. And there's certainly a big portion of whether it's state or federal people trying to be elected who are Republicans who are just going to stay the heck clear from Trump. And then you have the Democrat kind of towards the middle. You know, the outstanding example on a federal point is Joe Manchin, who's from a state, West Virginia, where Trump won by 40 points or something. And then you have Bernie Sanders and and Elizabeth Warren and AOC and the squad and whatnot. How they all are going to exist on a federal basis or in state and local races is not entirely clear. But before I turn it over to Mike, the one thing that I think you are going, they all are going to have to cope with is the overspending to deal with COVID-19 and its impact on the economy. This really can't continue. They've been able to overspend by four or five trillion dollars and the Fed balance sheet going from four trillion to nine trillion kind of enabled that. I mean, we in effect monetized all that debt. That that can't continue. The Fed balance sheet is going to have to go down, and the overall impact and inflation is going to have to be dealt with. They just will not have the flexibility to overspend the way they've overspent. And the consequences of that in terms of priorities are going to make dealing with those four different political groups on a federal basis, and a lot of that's replicated on a state basis, extremely difficult. And I don't know whether that's bad for capital markets, but, you know, it is an issue. And one of the issues is that the Biden administration is able to appoint, they have to get these people confirmed, but they're able to appoint people. One of the appointees is this lady who's at a very young age, I think she's 32 or something, is in charge of the FTC. And of course, that has an impact on NVIDIA because they have filed an action to contest NVIDIA's acquisition of arms. So I think the question for Mike, considering its impact on the kinds of companies he owns and covers and may want to own, you know, it's a huge impact. And uh, with that, we'll switch over to NVIDIA and ARM and other areas where regulation may have an impact on businesses that are high growing and, and either chips or software or what have you. So over to you, Mike. So it's a really good point, Hunt, because the I think some of the concerns about government spending through the remainder of 
Biden's term have been muted because it seems like he's not going to be able to get much done. But the place where things will probably get done is from a regulatory and antitrust perspective. Because like you said, those people are appointed. I think that you're going to see continued increased pressure on big tech. It will be harder for them to complete acquisitions. You know, it'd be interesting to see how Facebook shakes out, for example, because they're likely going to be subject to a lot of additional regulation, which will potentially just make it harder for smaller players to compete. So, you know, there's a few things at play there, but if I were going to pick what part of big tech to stay away from, I'd probably pick Facebook. And if I were going to pick what part of big tech that I'd be more comfortable with, I'd probably pick Microsoft. And the reason I'd pick Microsoft is because they have so much experience dealing with the government from a regulatory and antitrust perspective. If you think about what's happened in the last two years, Google, Apple, Amazon, everybody's been on the hit list except for Microsoft. Microsoft has threaded the needle very well. They have a very broad and diverse business to the point where it's actually relatively complicated to to chop it all up and really analyze it. But they've been able to make very good acquisitions. They've been able to grow with their Azure cloud. It's the second most popular and profitable cloud offering. So I still like Microsoft, but I think in general, if you think through the next three years or so, probably it probably bodes better for smaller players, uh, which I think is good. And I think that actually uh, lines up with my view as to what's happening in technology as well, because in a way, COVID-19 acted as an accelerant. What we've seen through COVID is that technology can really make a huge impact on society as a value add, which is very different than the dot-com era where there were companies IPOing with little to no business model and little to no value add. <laughs> now, because of COVID, we were able to all start working from home. We're able to sequence the DNA of a dangerous disease and turn out new vaccines. So I think you know the, the really positive perspective is that we could be entering another golden era of society, much like we did post-World War II. A really nice sentiment from Mike for going into uh, 22. And with that, everyone stay safe and be well. And we'll be back on next Wednesday at 3.30 Eastern. Take care, everyone. Happy New Year. joining us this week. 
please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.